Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, which is a podcast that just hit a brand new milestone. So let's start things off with a big thank you. But first, let me introduce my wonderful co-host, Nick Hill. What's up, Nick? Thanks, Dan. How you doing, man? I am happy to be here, happy to be here with you and, and just waiting for you to finish this major announcement because I was pressing refresh a lot last night <laughs> watching this number come in here. Yeah, well, I know it was your birthday and you wanted to hit this milestone by your birthday, but what, what did we come up like 100 views short or something on your birthday? It was a nail biter. We, uh, we were like, unfortunately, we were like 300 views short, but we crushed it the next day. So a belated birthday present from all of our listeners. So we hit 100,000 total downloads. Thank you very much to every single one of you out there sharing it with your friends, with your family, and just and tuning in, coming back and, and making it happen. We couldn't have done it without you. Yeah, you know, it's been really humbling, really exciting. I know Dan and I, this is, you know... We both love doing this so much. It's been a ton of work, but it's been an amazing opportunity for us. And we're just, we feel really blessed, you know, and next stop is, uh, is 1 million. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you very much. But Dan, you know what? Enough of that. We do have quite the show today. Lots to discuss. So, so let's start things off. And this, I'm going to start things off with a little anecdote that I shared with you this morning. That I thought fit really nicely into, into what we're discussing today. So I'm a part of a bunch of different investor groups, some on Facebook, some on WhatsApp, some we meet on Zoom, and they've played a really key role in my growth and in my general understanding of investing. They provide a great soundboard for any issue you have. They always open up a ton of doors for major referral networks, and they are always entertaining. That's a nice bonus. So this is a little tidbit from this morning that I shared with Dan, and we got a bit of a kick out of. So here we go. I just filled a vacancy in Oshawa. During the application process, I received at least two fraudulent sets of documents, in brackets, that I was actually able to verify there probably could have been more, close bracket. In one case, I was able to call the fake employer. This is a legitimate business being formed around getting bad tenants into property. It's scary. We need to be vetting everything. If anything is even slightly fishy, move on to the next one. In another case, the fake job letter didn't match the fake bank statements. Someone screwed up and showed weekly deposits matching the income as opposed to bi-weekly. So if you did the math, they were making twice the annual salary. If it wasn't for little mistakes like that, I would have had no idea the documents were fraudulent. Wow. Fake, fake, fake. What do you have to say about Dan? I mean, this, from my perspective, goes along with the mortgage fraud narrative that we've been hearing in Canadian real estate. We're in a housing crisis in this country. These are symptoms, not causes of problems in our country. We have a landlord and tenant board that doesn't function properly in a good portion of the provinces in Canada. We have abuse on both the tenant side and the landlord side. You know, there's bad tenants and bad landlords and people are exploiting the system. You know, some of these people like this is the same as somebody lying on a mortgage application. This is fraud for shelter. Somebody committing fraud because out of necessity, it's the only thing they can do to get themselves a house to prove that they can qualify. Like, it's not like they're defrauding a major financial institution. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm not condoning this by any means. But this is it's sad from my perspective that this stuff has to exist and that this stuff does perpetuate because we're in that severe of a state of housing crisis. 
So that's really all I have to say on that. And I think and I hope that some of these new reforms that we're seeing and hearing about and going to be talking about today from a zoning perspective, from a planning perspective, and then also what's happening in the economic environment where prices are coming down, hopefully that kind of takes a little bit of pressure off of what's happening in this imbalance, this excess demand that we have for housing on the ownership and on the rental side. And gradually, we start solving or seeing some of these symptoms disappearing because we're treating you know the core problem, which is that that excess demand. Yeah, really well said. When I reread this, it, it just gets crazier and crazier if you think that there's entire, I guess you call them businesses being built around this fraudulent activity, right? Hey, I'm your fake employer. I'm the person. I got a fake document guy. I got a fake employer guy. Like it's just, it's kind of crazy and it's kind of sad. But anyways, what we're going to be talking about today is a bit more of an exploration on this and and some tenant crisis, some tenant landlord crisis we're seeing. We're going to be talking about the increased in density legislation that we've just seen released in Ontario. And we're going to finish things off with a nice article from The Economist, one of our favorite sources. So let's dive right into the next article here, which is a great segue from what Dan was just saying, which is landlord claims, quote unquote, professional tenant owes $13,000 as she stopped paying rent. This is from CTV. So this Toronto resident bought a home as an investment property to help her pay her bills as a single parent and caregiver to her mother. But now the tenant inside her Mississauga rental home is refusing to pay rent or the utilities. Quote, I have no idea what to do at this point. How am I going to be able to keep this going and allow her to just live free accommodations? She told CTV, end quote. Dan, take it yeah, away. So she rented out the property to someone who had good references and income statements, but after the person paid first and last month's rent, it was basically they never paid rent again after that. I've actually experienced this before, by the way. I know you have. It's not fun. And so she became more concerned when she Googled her tenant's name and found that her name and her sister's name had an eviction hearing out at the landlord and tenant board earlier that year for failing to pay their former landlord almost $10,000. She said that she then researched this idea of professional tenants and found out that there are some renters who will move into a home, pay first and last month's rent, and then don't pay any more due to backlogs at the landlord and tenant board. They're able to stay there. Okay, hold up, hold up. Dan, you consider yourself a real estate professional, yes? Yeah. I'm a mortgage professional. What is a professional tenant? Well, I mean, you know, anybody who makes money doing something is that's their profession, is right? A, is a profession. And, and I, I guess, guess they so. are making yeah. money. Like the, you know, the consideration is that they're getting free housing. Professional tenant is someone who understands the legal loopholes and technicalities in order to game the system to their advantage. They know how to withhold rent due to repairs. They understand how to drag an eviction process out and how to get it expunged from their record. They usually have a specific rental history from jumping from place to place in an effort to avoid paying full rent. So the article goes on to say, in a statement from an LTB spokesperson, that's a landlord-tenant board, quote, processing times are longer than we wish them to be. New and adjourned matters are currently being scheduled on an average within seven to eight months, end quote. Okay, well, we know that even at seven to eight months, I think that's wishful thinking because we know it can take up to a yeah, year. Yeah, my record is 16 months. 16, wow, that's a pretty good PB right there. Personal best LTB. <laughs> so this is a problem and we have spoken about it many times on the show again and again. A few things to note from my point of view, right? 
landlords are always demonized. And yes, of course, there are horrible landlords. We've talked about that openly on the show before. But there can be horrible tenants as well. And both sides deserve justice because what we're seeing in this story right here is wrong. And, you know, you can't wait a year for something that is blatantly wrong and illegal to be dealt with. It makes me think of that really sad, ironic, and funny quote that we read from Twitter that one time where it was basically if, you know, keeping a tenant in your property while them not paying rent is like forcing a robber to stay in your store and rob you for an entire year. And also, this seems to be happening more and more as interest rates and other things make it more difficult for everyone in the economy. So we start to see people take advantage of this even more. So my advice to landlords is really focus on doing your due diligence and provide a great service. My advice to tenants is treat the property like it's yours. And I take that advice on both sides because I'm both a landlord and a tenant. Yeah, I, I agree with most of the advice there. You know, we've talked about this a lot of times, and I don't think it can be over discussed. I mean, it's a very qualitative issue. I don't think that it's happening more because of what's happening in the interest rate environment. That's the part I d- kind of disagree with. I, I think that we're hearing about it a lot more because people are suffering a lot more. And this to me is a sign of a couple of different things. One is we're seeing a big shift in the narrative of what's happening about around real estate right now. And we're seeing a much more direct acceptance and it being brought to the light that we are in a very real housing crisis situation in Canada. And when that's, you know, I mean, look, a rising tide lifts all boats when interest rates are going down for a long period of time and the economy is ripping, it's it doesn't hurt as much. And now the tide goes out, that rising tide that lifted all the boats and we find out who's swimming naked, right? And this is when the economic pain of deals not working really starts to show. The thing that I would add there before we move on to the next piece is that we got to remember, you know, yeah, there are bad actors on both sides of of the aisle, but this is really, from my perspective, in a lot of cases, selfishness, right? People who aren't thinking about not, you know, I mean, yeah, you could say humanity, right? All fellow human beings, but bad landlords hurt good landlords because tenants are more, they have their guard up. They are more resistant to you know, when you're trying to collaborate with them on an N11, as an example, for doing a fair eviction, or they hear the word eviction, because they've had bad experiences from bad landlords. On the same token, that bad landlords hurt good landlords, bad tenants hurt good tenants. When a bad tenant is occupying a unit for 16 months without paying, that's a unit that a good tenant who is dealing with a housing crisis right now is unable to occupy, even if they're willing to pay. These are problems that have real collateral damages outside of just the scope of what we are talking about. And now I think we're starting to see solutions, which we're going to get to what I think could be, you know, and and one of the things that we predicted. But let's take a quick break here and then we'll jump over to Doug Ford's reforms that will create new housing. So the next headline reads, Doug Ford's reforms will create new housing, but don't count on it being affordable from the Globe and Mail. With its new sprawling housing reform bill, Ontario Premier Doug Ford's government has pulled out all the regulatory steps in its bid to build 1.5 million homes over the next decade. But the government's hyped promise is to short-circuit nimbyism and greenlight duplexes and triplexes in the house neighborhoods that dominate most southern Ontario cities is more of a mixed bag. 
House neighborhoods are also known incorrectly as neighborhoods zoned for single-family housing, typically large areas built after the Second World War that excluded duplexes, triplexes, and small apartment buildings. So just think suburbia. Yeah, totally. And we did cover a lot of that in our Missing Middle episode. So go check that out. That's episode 29. And, you know, in my research for that episode, it was shocking to see the zoning that, that covers so much of really urban areas is, is single family. And we had some great stats. So go check that episode out for more information. The article goes on to say, the new rules say that residential properties can now be retrofitted with up to three dwelling units, provided the footprint of the home doesn't change. So essentially, you can put a basement suite in, you can you can cut the top in, in two, as long as you're not putting a major addition. That's what it means by footprint. In smaller cities, the change marks a departure. But in the city of Toronto, council in the past few years has already passed the quote-unquote missing middle policies that allow, in addition to the main dwelling, a secondary suite and a laneway house or a so-called garden suite. Now, we have talked about that a ton. We love that idea. We're super bullish on it. We're in the early stages of working with several different people in several different places to get these laneway businesses set up. The next council, in fact, will be debating a change in Toronto's official plan to allow multiplexes in neighborhoods, duplexes and triplexes, but also fourplexes and small-scale apartments. Yeah, the new legislation also significantly waters down the inclusionary zoning requirements meant to ensure that developers add affordable units to high-rises near transit stops. As well, changes to allow duplexes and triplexes won't add large volumes of new housing, and what is built will likely fetch high rents, as has been seen with Toronto's laneway rental units. I don't know whether or not I agree with that. I think you're 2xing density, so I mean, I think it could potentially be meaningful. Yeah, but before you move on there, that's that's the one thing I read that too. It's funny because I think what they're they're basing off of the data that we already see. Right, if you look at any of the existing garden suites and laneway homes, number one, most of them are absolutely gorgeous. They're they're all ten out of tens. They're all brand new builds. We know the cost of construction. We know you're getting essentially a condo with a walkout opportunity in a great neighborhood. So. All, all of the existing laneway homes and garden suites are very expensive, but that's also because there's so few of them. So I think that basing off of the, you know, the high rents now, I'd agree. But as you said, if we see a whole bunch of new ones across the, the country, across the province, ideally those will be a bit more affordable. Well, I think another point that to be made there is that, you know, if you're building a garden suite or a laneway house, that's a detached new dwelling. That means new foundation, you know, new gas lines, new water, sewer, electrical, brand new structure. You're paying, you know, I mean, what we've interviewed two guys who have built laneway homes in in Toronto that were paying, I think, I think Brandon Donnelly's was like 400 bucks a buildable square foot in creation costs, right? Total creation costs. And then somebody else, George, who we interviewed, I did with Adam, we did a video tour of his property. It was like 450 per square foot. If you're building a, a unit in an existing building, you don't have to do that. You don't have to pour any foundation. You don't, you know, all the services are already there. All you got to do is conform to existing building code. So you're probably going to spend somewhere in the range of 100 to 200 bucks a square foot. And so your creation costs are a lot less. So you don't have to go over the top to make it worth your while. You don't have to present a huge luxury unit to make it worth your while to command the rent that's going to make the economics of that deal make sense. So that's why I do think that it could really cater to, you know, the lower end of the market because you're not building too expensively and you don't have to, you know, completely blow the walls out on 
making it super sexy to command high rents. Anyway, let's continue with this one. So they said Toronto and Mississauga both also face potential challenge with their respective rental replacement rules, which currently requires that builders redeveloping large apartment buildings replace every single rental units with one of a similar size. So let's look at this from two perspectives. The first being, yeah, it's a good thing. We've waited a long time to see some changes for the zoning to cut some red tape and developers want to see it because it'll create more density, which we desperately need. But on the other side, does this address the affordable housing crisis in Toronto and the GTA? What do you think, Nick? I mean, I would say most likely no in the GTA. I would say it's definitely going to help, but does it address it and fix it? No. And we'll get into that in a second. I do honestly think it could be impactful. And here's why. I think that, you know, we're hearing about all of these things, people protesting interest rates, right? A lot of people suffering economically. And I mean, when you're suffering economically, if you can't, if you're about to not be able to make your mortgage payment, if you're, you know, in a, in a tough position, what are your options? Your options are one, liquidate, or two, you know, when we talk to this all the t- talk about this all the time on the show, as investors, we can increase our income, make the asset better. And so, all of a sudden, you're presented with this opportunity now staring down the barrel of a recession where you can basically maybe turn that unfinished basement in your house, squeeze those last couple of dollars of savings that you had and and put a unit in the basement and you can move into the basement maybe or you can put a tenant in the basement and now all of a sudden your mortgage that you know you have something some income that can offset that increase that you saw in your mortgage. So I personally think that just given the economic circumstances, there's going to be a high demand for people to use this as a rescue as a lifeboat in some of these more expensive areas, I actually think this is going to be more impactful in the GTA than it will be outside of the GTA. That's just my my two cents. Yeah, really interesting. And, you know, just I want to touch on something you said there. I mean, like, let's say you have a one of the gentlemen we spoke with a few weeks ago. If you own a single family home with a potential for a lane suite in the back, what I personally would be doing is I'd be going and building myself that nice laneway suite. So I still, as the owner of the property, maybe I have a bit of privacy. Maybe I don't want to be in a shared building, but now I can go turn that home into a triplex. I'd agree with you. Look, uh, the only reason I'm saying I don't, I think it addresses the affordable housing crisis. I don't think it solves it, but I do definitely think it's a big step in the right direction. I'm really excited for it. And and the reason I say that with a bit of hesitation is, look, we've seen legislation like this come forward before years ago. And if you look at other articles covering this topic, obviously, everyone was covering this topic. Many of them include direct quotes from NIMBYs, which again, to remind everyone, that's an acronym for not in my backyard. And, you know, it's it's a classic stuff. Everyone agrees that we need to intensify, that we need to densify, but no one wants it around them, right? It's the classic quotes. It's, it's, I like it. I understand it, but it's not right for the area. It doesn't fit the character of the neighborhood and so on and so forth. So, you know, don't forget that we do need to build another 1.5 homes in Ontario in the next 10 million. years and almost 6 million in Canada in that same amount of time. That's directly from CMHC. Yes, 6 million. No, you so, missed the million on the 1.5. I'm like 1.5 homes. Oh, I just said yeah. 1.5? <laughs> oh, well, buddy, we can handle that. We need that. to build 1.5 homes for us <laughs> by the end of this 1. week. 1.5 <laughs> million in Ontario, 6 million across the country. You know, opening up legislation and, and cutting some of the red tape for to increase zoning. I'm overjoyed to see it. I'm, I'm very excited to see it. I think it's still going to take a little longer to really see some change than, than we'd hope. Yeah. And great segue jumping into the CMHC data there because I actually wanted to reference some CMHC data as well that I sent you. Let's just take a quick break here and then I'll jump into it. 
So have you ever encountered the practice of holding off offers when house hunting? It's used as a sales strategy all the time. And data suggests that it could actually have a notable impact on prices. So using Hamilton as a case study, we CMHC took a closer look at what happens in these cases. So again, looking at Hamilton from January 2021 to June of 2022, sellers with offer dates, one listed 60K lower on average than others, but sold 30K higher on average than others. So simply put, during hot markets, sellers with offer dates list lower and sell higher. Holding off offers and setting a low list price in a hot market tends to drive up interest and ultimately higher bids. It's actually interesting because we talked about this on a recent episode and we were using a property in Hamilton that's a deal that we were working on. So I thought it was hilarious when I sent this over to you that they chose to use Hamilton. And Hamilton is one of those younger markets. It's you know It's got a lot of millennials, so people who are, are more likely to tolerate this kind of marketing BS. But when the market shifted in Q2 of 2022, fewer sellers were using this strategy. And I discussed this already, and I actually used Q3 data, which CMHC doesn't even have yet. But when we were talking about whether or not we were seeing a spike of bidding wars in the Ontario market. So I think we've covered that. I, I don't think there's much more to say on it, but it just was interesting to see CMHC coming out and speaking about it. So let's move on to a great piece and that has a bit more of a global perspective. But before I do that, I think you got something to say here. You're looking pretty eager. Yeah, I just wanted to add to the Hamilton piece. One, obviously super topical and relevant for us. But when we were at that event last week and we were listening to the developers speak about which areas in the GTA, and again, sorry for anyone listening outside of Ontario, this this is a little Ontario-centric, but Hamilton, they said, has the largest government-funded infrastructure projects, I believe it was in Canada, like I think yeah, with the LRT there's more money, and all that stuff, yeah. The LRT, some new sewage lines, all this kind of stuff. So again, just really interesting to see Hamilton come up in, in the news a couple of times. But anyways, Dan, let's get to this Economist article. Yeah, for sure. So The Economist had a headline out recently that stated, housing markets face a brutal squeeze. And they put, you've probably seen this graphic. They put this graphic out regularly. I think it's like once a quarter. And you'll often see it shared. I was the guy who got to share it first this time on Twitter. So I got lots of retweets. But it's basically like a bunch, three columns and a, a list of all of the cities around the world. And it's the housing risk indicators in select countries. And they basically use three factors that determine where pain is most acute in housing markets around the world and thus where consequences are the most likely. And much like the most recent UBS bubble index, somewhere that we know and are familiar with ended up on the top of this list, Nick. So what's the first economic factor? The first is recent price growth. So housing markets where prices have surged since the pandemic are especially vulnerable to cooling demand. Seems to make pretty much good sense right there. Well, many rich countries slowed to annual growth rates in the single digits at the start of this year, America and Canada maintained double-digit rises, fueled by high demand for housing in the mountain towns and sunbelt states that attract well-heeled Californians and New Yorkers, along with cities like, wait a second, Toronto? I think it's pronounced Trana. Toronto? Borrowing levels are the second factor. The higher household debt is as a share of income, the more vulnerable owners are to higher mortgage payments and defaults. So the more debt you have, the more vulnerable you are. 
Central bankers will find solace in the fact that household debt relative to income is lower than it was on the eve of the global financial crisis. Well, that's good. In countries like America, Britain, and Spain. Wait, why weren't we on that list? Yet some countries face a mountain of debt? No. This makes (laughs) them sensitive to even small rises in mortgage rates. Households in Australia, Canada, there we are, and Sweden, which managed to escape the full brunt of the financial crisis, have run up staggering borrowings in the years since. Prompted warnings from financial watchdogs, as Stefan Ingevis, governor of Sweden's central bank, has put it, it's like sitting on top of a volcano. That is not a good you know, visual. Alanis Morissette song. <laughs> the third factor is the speed at which higher interest rates pass through to homeowners. The biggest risk to borrowers on floating rate mortgages. So remember, set the stage. Back us up a little bit to Q1 of this year, Nick. This was the first time, I think, that we'd ever seen variable rate mortgage originations get over 50%, and they hit over 60% in Q1 of this year. Why? Because people were going to the lower variable rate to qualify for those out-of-reach house prices. So they face an immediate reduction in their disposable income. In Canada, variable rate mortgages account for more than half of all loans. In Australia and Sweden, they account for nearly two-thirds. Yeah, I actually don't know if that final stat is correct. It's there. not actually. That's it's incorrect in there. I think it was put that in as a red herring. For yeah, me. <laughs> I was I was testing you. No, it's thirty three percent of all outstanding mortgages. I think and sixty percent of all new originations from the last data we have. But this is why the Bank of Canada rate hike matters. We're highly indebted and therefore more vulnerable to rate hikes. Totally. And you can actually see this as a kind of phenomenon just within the microeconomics within Canada, because different areas will be impacted independently by the first two factors mentioned here by The Economist, house prices and household debt. Yeah. So basically, areas that had faster price increases are falling faster and harder. So there's a degree of predictability here if you're looking to make an investment and try to figure out what the market is going to do. Those areas are all more likely to have higher indebtedness because as prices increase, buyers now need to borrow more money in order to afford those homes. And this is why we saw such a big increase in variable rate mortgages during the final run-up in Q1 of this year. Man, that was a good time. Feels like a long time ago. Okay, so let's just break all of this stuff down. Because I said kind of early on at the beginning, like, I actually feel like shit sometimes when I'm doing these episodes, because I'm like, this is a bunch of like, really negative stuff that we're saying right now. But like, you can't find good media stories in the real estate space right now. Whereas like, for the past two years, it was like every blog TO article or every like Globe and Mail article was like, this home sold $400,000 over asking. So I mean, look, you kind of got to take the good with the bad. And it seems like the narrative is shifting now. And we're in this era where, and I've said this for a while, I think that what's going to happen slowly is there will see a secular shift into more and more fear of investing in real estate. Like right now, it's hard to find somebody who wants to buy a Bitcoin as an example. And people who, who I listen to when they talk about the impact of housing cycles, they say, you know, to me, what the bottom of the real estate cycle would look like is when the real estate asset is like that too. That sounds extreme to me, but I'm just saying that's what I've heard, so... Yeah, agreed. I mean, look, it is, we've said this time and time again, what a time to be alive. We witnessed the biggest bull run in in decades. And now I think we're going to witness a a major bear market that a lot of people and and probably most of our listeners have not seen. So 
outside of all the doom and gloom that we report. And I don't think that we try to focus on that. You know, what we try to do is provide a, a clear path and as much information to investors as possible. Unfortunately, investors, just like anybody, are attached to the market and the cycles. And although we can't control them, we have to know what's going on. So now that we know what's going on, Dan, let's unpack these, as you said, and try to find a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel with, you know, going back through these articles with the landlord and tenant boards and the fraudulent activities there. We have started to see, I mean, a little bit of good news, Doug Ford's new reforms on, on housing. That, that's a little bit of good news. But again, you know, going back to the Economist article, the, the UBS housing bubble, and then even the monetary policy that we just covered in another episode, a lot of it does look grim. But let's focus on the positives out of here. Let's let's try to tell our listeners and the investors out there what they should be doing in, in these times. My perspective on the matter is our goal here is to present a balanced view of the real estate market. And right now, there's not a lot of good things happening in the real estate market. But that's important. It's necessary for you to have a balanced view is to understand all of those bad things. We just saw, and the the fact that we have this obsession with real estate in this country, the fact that you and I can get 100,000 listens in two months on a podcast talking about real estate investing is a function of and a symptom of- Four months. (laughs) Whatever it is. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, so, I mean, it's because, you know, we were in this- era where it was a get rich quick scheme. Everybody was seeing everybody making money in real estate. It was very similar. I mean, I don't there's less systemic issues than we saw in the states, but the social aspect, the obsession, this, you know, this thought that it was like a, you know, this cultural necessity to become a homeowner, to re- become a real estate investor. That's gradually eroding, and I think that that's healthy because just like we need a balanced market view, we need a balanced real estate market. We need a market that allows people to purchase assets safely using home inspections, using financing conditions, a market where landlords and tenants can collaborate on coming to a mutually beneficial agreement, a system where the landlord and tenant board isn't bogged down because there's enough units and people don't have to fight or commit fraud to get access to a unit and that units aren't being tied up for four to 16 months by people who aren't paying and taking units out of the supply pipeline. And there's a lot of different ways that you can get us out of that state of a housing crisis. And many of them are happening now. You know, One is monetary policy, adjusting prices down significantly. The other is bringing more supply on. And I think as we start to see more and more zoning re- reform, you know, things will likely loosen up and gradually this will make for a much healthier growth period in the fullness of time. That's a while out from my perspective. Now, Quickly, the balance view and the negativity is necessary to look at what is the worst case scenario because we want to make good investments and a good investment can stand the test of time in the worst case scenario. Like, you know, we're closing on properties and and I mentioned this in the last episode. I still think there's probably a minimum of 10% downside on price in the market, but price isn't what I care about. I care about the yield. And by the time that I see that 10% downside in price, I will have made more than 10% in income on that property. And so, if you can evaluate the worst case scenario, I could be wrong with a lot of the things that are my perspectives. But if you if if you can look at me, and this is why a lot of my investor clients are very happy and very successful, because if they can look at the world and if if I, if it's a grim or bearish worldview, and they can still make sense of an investment and they're still happy with it, it's going to be a good investment. And if it can survive that test, when you model things, you'll hear people in investment banking say this all the time: base case, 
best case, worst case. Can it survive the worst case? Because the best case is probably not what you're going to end up with. What do you think, Nick? The best case, I think, was a nice little two-year period there where the best case suddenly became the normal case. And then it was like the best, best case. But that's also on the growth side, right? Like what happened when COVID started was a lot of these tenant issues started to rear their ugly heads. You went through it. I've been through it. My 16-month eviction, you know, six months of that was because COVID put that moratorium on. Yeah. And I mean, I just think with the tenant piece and the landlord piece, again, it's just diplomacy always works and you really got to do your due diligence. You can't, I cannot stress that enough because you just hate to see it. And honestly, there's been so many people I've spoken to, prospective investors, as well as let's say ex-investors that, you know, used to own a couple duplexes or had one or two or whatever it may be. And the reason I hear the most that people either don't want to get in or get out is tenant issues. So there's ways around it, you know, be good tenants, be good landlords. That's it. Before we wrap up here, I want to talk a little bit about just, again, I just think it's, you know, we've been on so on point recently, having that missing middle episode, kind of connecting with a bunch of people trying to build out the missing middle and now seeing Ontario legislation change. You know, I personally own a couple properties where I bought them years ago, looking at them saying, one point I'm either going to sever this or there is going to be a full another unit on this property. Obviously that's the, I mean, still talking to builders that are looking to do it. And Dan, one of the properties that we just closed on, this is one of our plans to do it with it. Talking to the city, talking to professionals there, whether they're in the real estate space or the construction space or people who have done it are telling me, you know, if you want it done in the next couple of years, you got to start now. So we're still moving slow, but at least the ball is rolling now. And I think this presents a massive opportunity to any investors out there. When you're looking for a property, and you should have been doing this before regardless, but when you're looking for a property, if there is the potential to not only duplex or triplex it now, but to build another unit on the property, you've kind of got the green light to do that now. And it's it's essentially easier now than ever before. And I'll tell you, I personally think we're going to see a whole bunch of amazing companies, amazing small businesses start to appear over the next few years that make this process way easier. People that will come in and handle the design, the build, the planning and permitting process all to get your unit built in your backyard. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for those kind of like laneway suites in a box or whatever you're describing as well, right? Like I think that this is cool because we're starting to see innovation on the planning side. Maybe not innovation. Other like European countries have been doing this forever, but... You know, I think innovation is deflationary. You want to see prices come down, you allow people to innovate. And so I think that, you know, like, and, you know, not to say I told you so, but we did say that this was coming. We got lucky that it <laughs> happened that quickly. But if you're seeing it happen, remember that, you know, we don't talk about Toronto as the center of the universe. We talk about it as a leading indicator of what's going to happen in Canada because it is a difficult policy environment. So if we can get it done, the rest of Canada can certainly get it done. And so, this is the the direction that things are going in the Canadian market. Adding, de- We've learned that large institutions and high-rise buildings and the existing government and planning environment isn't going to solve a housing crisis. Who's going to solve a housing crisis? Little mom-and-pop investors like Nick and Dan and like our listeners around the country who are going to increase the density of their buildings by 100% by adding one single unit, two single units, right? 100 or 200% increase in density one at a time. And that's it. Like that's, that's really the answer. And it's a shame that it took us this long to learn that, but it's also good that we finally have learned it. And it's good that we started this podcast 
at the time when this stuff is coming to light because this is a it's a lot for us to talk about but it's also a, it's uncharted territory for us to explore together and speaking of doing that exploring it together we do have dates for our two upcoming events so we are going to be launching an edmonton event i'm trying to potentially get a calgary event as well edmonton's gonna be on the 26th of november so that's coming up soon and it's gonna be at work nicer in edmonton which is a co-working space and it's going to be co-hosted by our wonderful listener, Marshall. And I think we're going to be featuring some cool guests. We're trying to get Bridget as well as No Budget Babe to come. And also a cool house flipping group from Edmonton called Mother Flippers, which is an amazing Ooh. name. And then following <laughs> that up in Toronto, we're going to have a event in January. I think it was the 21st of January at Loft Castlefield, which is in sort of like, I think it's like uh, Allen and Eglinton in, in Toronto. So that's going to be really exciting. We're like super excited to meet people and to start actually like collaborating as a community on some investments, some developments, some joint ventures, whatever it is. Like we're just excited to see this, what this next chapter looks like. I had no idea that this was going to happen this soon, but thank you all for, for your amazing support and helping us make this happen. And if you are an individual like Marshall, or like Sal, who's helping with the Toronto event, who listens to the podcast and you want to champion a local event of your own, please let us know. We are kind of working on like a little process manual right now where we're just going to flip it over to you. And much like with a laneway house in a box, we're going to try and have a Canadian real estate investor meetup in a box for you to be able to do. And our goal is to actually attend the first events of all of these little franchises that we're going to see set up. So give us a shout. We want to help you out. Super exciting. Yeah. I mean, we'll be reaching out to people in every province. So yeah, reach out to us and we will respond and make sure it happens. Anyways, thanks so much for listening to everybody. Again, benchmark 100,000. Super happy, super thankful. We'll see you soon. Keep listening. Write a review. Leave us five stars. We love you guys. The Canadian Real Estate Investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.